so good to be with you this morning. It's just so fun to see the chairs filling in and to see your faces and be present together, uh, to be able to talk and hang out a little bit. So, And I know those of you who are online, you're, you're on your way sometime in the future, and that's great. And um, we're just excited to be able to be together, to be the church together. I want you to imagine with me this morning, what would a world be without sin? Imagine a world without sin. Now what is sin? Sin is doing the things that God never intended us to do or not doing the things that he did intend us to do. Right? So we can get off either way. And, and, and the Bible teaches us that when sin came into the world, there was tremendous decay that followed. All the things in this world that are broken, all the entropy that we experience, um, the things that are not the way that they should be are a result of sin entering into the world. The word, world is captive to it. So when we think of war and all the other broken things of this world, they, they go back to that one moment when when sin entered in. So think with me of a world that has no sin in it. What would it be like? And I walk out my front door and there's my garden and, and guess what? There's no weeds. And my wife's been doing battle with spider mites. We have these vines that we planted and they're coming up over the fence and it's creating this beautiful little patio area. But now they're covered in spider mites and so she's doing battle. No, no more spider mites. Right? And then that, that car that's stuck in my driveway that won't start because the cables, battery cables have corroded. Right? There'll be no corrosion. That old car won't be old anymore either. Right? Because there's no decay. Maybe I won't even be driving a car. I walk down the street, my normal rhythm to go to my office. I encounter another human being. But the, the relationship is completely different. Right? There's, there's none of the things that we normally uh, associate. There, 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 there's no uncertainty as we're, we're having a conversation. Right? There's no posturing. There's no judgment that I experience or that the other person experiences. There's no sense of superiority nor any sense of inferiority. Right? There's no distrust that's woven itself into our communication. There's no falsity, no falseness in the way that we speak to one another. There's no misplaced eros in any of our relationships. There's no comparison going on. Can you imagine? There's just that's replaced with freedom and ease and bathed in love, an agape love. I keep on walking, I, I go to my office, I sit down at my desk, because, you know, creating things, working, is, is still part of life. That's who we are as image bearers. We, we need to be doing those things. But I, I sit down at my desk, and now, absent from what I'm trying to do, is any sense that I have to somehow prove my value or my worth in what I accomplish at this desk or in the meetings that I have. It's all gone. And the thorns and thistles that came in at the time of the fall. You know, I don't have literal thorns and thistles in my work, but I, there's thorns and thistles. And they impede the progress and they slow things down and create all kinds of havoc. Those are all gone. No more thorns and thistles. And I'm left with just a sense of creating in a way that mirrors 
my maker who is the consummate creator. And I'm in relishing and enjoying whatever kind of craftsmanship that is associated with what I've been given to do. What do you think of? How, what do you imagine when you think of a world without sin? Been people a lot more creative than I who have tried to explain and explore what a world would be like without sin. Wendell Berry, one of my favorite authors, in his book Remembering, which is one of my favorite books of my favorite authors, um, he writes of a man named Andy who has lost his right hand. He's lost his right hand. Middle-aged man, farmer, who's lost his right hand in a farming accident. And the injury launches him on a journey of reflection about really um, his sense of worth and purpose now that he has lost this hand. He's questioning that. He's filled, it's filled with self-doubt, uncertainty, futil- a sense of futility and hopelessness. He goes around the country. He's kind of, you know, uh, doing various things associated with his work. Uh, but now he's got no hand. And he's going around. And, and throughout the process, he, he, he's, he's grappling with these deep and profound questions. It's kind of like a torturous pilgrimage. And he finally returns home to his familiar home in the small town where he lives um, and his beloved farm. And walking up a very familiar hillside uh, after he's returned from his journey, he, he comes under a very familiar tree and he sits down and he falls asleep. And in the midst of his sleeping, he's given a vision. Not like, you know, we've been studying in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is getting one vision after the other. God's giving him these visions. And then he relates the vision to the people of Israel to get them going. Well, Andy, he gets a vision. It seems like he's asleep maybe or somewhere in this in-between space. And it's a vision uh, in which a man shows him a transformed version of his town. One in which there is no sin. Let me read a portion to you. Andy looks and sees the town and the fields around it, Port William, and its countryside, as he has never saw, as he never saw or dreamed them. The signs everywhere upon them of the care of a longer love than any who have lived there have ever imagined. The houses are clean and white, and great trees stand among them and spread over them. The fields lie around the town, divided by rows of such trees as stand in the town and in the woods, each field more beautiful than all the rest. Over the town and fields, the one great song sings and is answered everywhere. Every leaf and flower and grass blade sings. And in the fields and the town, walking, standing, or sitting under the trees, resting and taking together in the peace of a Sabbath profound and bright, are people of such beauty that he weeps to see them. He sees that these are the membership of one another and of the place and of the song or light in which they live and move. He sees that they are the dead and they are alive. He sees that he lives in eternity as he lives in time and nothing is lost. Among the people of that town, he sees men and women he remembers and men and women remembered in memories he remembers. 
and they do not look as he ever saw or imagined them. The young are no longer young, nor the old, old. They appear as children, corrected and clarified. They have the luminous vividness of new grass after fire. And yet they are mature as ripe fruit. And yet they are flowers. He would go to them, but another movement of his guide's hand shows him that he must not. It's not his time yet. He must go no closer. He is not to stay. Grieved as he may be to leave them, he must leave. He wants to leave. Remember, this is just a vision. He's not there yet. He must go back with his help, such as it is, and offer it. He's come into the presence of those, these living ones, by a change of sight, by which he has parted from them as they were, and from himself as he was and is. Now he prepares to leave them, their names singing in his mind. He lifts towards them the restored right hand of his joy. It's good to dream about a world without sin. Is there a hope for any such world? That's the question Zechariah puts before us this morning. Is there a hope for any such world? Well, let's jump into this beautiful vision given to Zechariah and explore the question together. Would you, again, look back. Thank you, Jim, for reading that so, so wonderfully. At Zechariah 5, we're going to take this in two chunks. First, verses 1 through 4. We're really looking at two visions today. There's eight visions total in the book of Zechariah. Uh, and we're going to be looking at six and seven. Uh, remember that Zechariah the prophet has been sent to Israel to encourage them to get going. To get doing the things that God has called them to do. You remember for hundreds of years uh, they were uh, rejecting the authority of God. Israel was. And so God eventually after calling them through the king and the prophets sent them into exile to try to capture their attention. They go into exile for 70 years. They come back into the land. They come back into the, to the promised land, to the land that they were given. And they're there to, to bring a restored version of the community. And they're supposed to be focusing on building, rebuilding the temple which has been destroyed. The temple is critical. It's key. It's core to the people of God because the temple is where the presence of God is. It's the very center of their whole community. It's the center of who they are, their identity, their being. They're supposed to be rebuilding the temple, but they're not. First, they were impeded by the people around them, and then they settled into kind of an apathy, and they haven't been, they've been focusing on building their paneled houses and taking care of other things. They haven't been building the temple, the place where God dwells, uh, and so Zechariah is sent by God to call them, to, to shoo them into action to get them moving so that they can do the things that God has called them to do. There's just so much here about us coming out of this pandemic. I don't know if we're coming out of it or whatever we're doing. Uh, we're, you know, this, this whole thing of, of us being called to step into the beautiful, wonderful, glorious, um, Christ-centered work that God has for us. So in the same way that Zechariah comes to them, he comes to us. 
And in this vision, uh, he gets a picture of this kind of world we've been, we've been describing already. Let's look at it. Verse, verse 1 in chapter, chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, a flying scroll. Um, and I just want to point out that uh, Emily has been leading the kids through a project um, with this passage. So uh, I said, Emily, why did you choose the most weirdest passage in the entire book of Zechariah for the kids to do a project on? Well, she said, I, that's what she chose. And so uh, if you go out into the foyer afterwards, you're going to see flying scrolls. Now they've tweaked it a little bit because on these flying scrolls you're going to see things that they're excited will disappear when sin is gone from the world. Isn't that beautiful? It's really cool. So take a look at that. Anyway, we've got flying scrolls here. This is a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see flying a, a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits. It's like a massive billboard. It's not just a scroll. It's 30 feet by 15 feet. Some say it's representative of a portion of the temple itself. But what could be on it? That should be the question that we've been asking. Verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side, the other side of the scroll. So this is a scroll that has two sides to it, which most likely refer to the, the two tables of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and so on each side, you have a commandment that represents all the commandments. You've got the one about stealing, um, which has to do with your relationships with people, your horizontal relationships, and then you have the commandment, the one about um, uh, bearing false witness. Uh, and so then you've got this uh, relationship to God, kind of swearing falsely, I should say, not bearing false witness, swearing falsely. Um, and so you've got this, this commandment that has to do with your relationship to God. And those are the two tables of the Ten Commandments. So most see in this scroll a representation of the Ten Commandments. So here the Ten Commandments have gone out, in essence, flying over the land. Okay, and so what's, what's happening with it? Verse 4, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. So this scroll is, is not going to miss anything. Every breaking of a commandment will be found out. It will go into all the houses and ferret out all the sin and find it all. That's what it says. And it will be destroyed. All of that sin will be destroyed. And I would say, we're going to stop here, and then we're going to go to the next part, and we'll kind of come back and bring it all together. There's, there's a part of us that likes this, right? We like that evil will be rooted out. Right? I mean, we like investigations into corruption. Right? There's a, there's a whole segment of the news media that is all about that. And the more salacious and the more juicy it is, the more entertaining it is, right? The more it piques our curiosity. We love it when people who have caused us harm get found out, right? That person who cuts you off on the freeway and almost makes you crash and then a few minutes later you see them pulled over by the police getting a ticket. You drive by and wave and make sure they see you, right? 
there's part of us that, that wants to see evil things rooted out in the world. And, and, and of course, you know, there's an element of that that's probably ungodly in us. Uh, but there's a portion of it that's godly as well. We long for a world in which all of the causes of sin have been rooted out. As Jesus talks about it in Matthew 13. But here's the kicker. The scroll that searches every house also searches our house. The scroll that searches every house also searches our house. You know, I'm forever getting upset with my family for taking my tools, which are very precious to me, and using them and then not putting them back in the very carefully organized space that I have in my garage. It's a big area of tension in my household. Uh, and so um, recently my Allen key wrench was gone from its special place on the board. And I just assumed that somebody had taken it to fix something and I imagined it was lying around in somebody's bedroom or in the backyard or in the car or wherever it could be. And uh, a couple weeks later, uh, it's still missing, and I'm in the airport, and uh, I put my backpack through the TSA scanner, and I walk to the other side, and the TSA agent says, uh, sir, um, could you come with us? Uh, there's something in your backpack. We think it is an Allen wrench key, but we just need to make sure. In other words, I was found out, right? <laughs> And it was my house where the problem was. It was my backpack. Uh, there's an element of this where we see the scroll going out. And yes, we want there to be evil rooted out in the world. But if that's actually truly going to happen, then the scroll's also going to fly over our house. The scroll that finds everyone else out finds us out too. Now, with some of these visions, it's a little tricky to know how they would be fulfilled in Zechariah's day. And uh, for them, it was probably enough to know that, you know, someday sin and wickedness will be removed from the land. Uh, and all the small things that they were doing, right? They, remember, this is the theme that we're looking at, you know, rejoice in the day of small things. They were doing small themes, things that seemed insignificant to them. But for them to hear this vision, it would almost be to put put that in context. Look, look, your acts of righteousness, your service to the Lord, your service to one another, these small things that you're doing are not actually insignificant because this is where the world is going. That That's what this vision would have said to them. That, that don't give up because your small acts are part of a larger whole, a larger fabric. And so it would have been that kind of encouragement to them. Now, of course, we uh, come to this vision uh, very differently because uh, in Christ, we've had a lot more revealed to us, right? 
So we understand the truth of this passage, but also a lot more that sort of fills it out. So, so how do we how do we process this vision and the impact that it should have on us? Uh, and there's two ways in the New Testament where we encounter, in a sense, that curse of the law and how we might interact with the curse of the law as it comes upon the land to to destroy and get rid of sin and wickedness in the world. Two options here. The first one is found in Galatians 3.13. We'll put that up for you. Pretty self-explanatory. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So there you are, the scroll is going out, and it is covering the land, it's going to every house, it's going to all those other houses, but it's also going to your house. So what do you do? And this is the answer. That in fact, Jesus came to be the one to allow the curse that was intended for you and your sin to be put upon himself. That's what it means when he goes to the cross. And he hangs there on the cross, on the tree, as it were. Cursed is everyone who's on a tree. There is Jesus. He's becoming the curse for us. And we can relationally and forensically connect ourselves to that act of Jesus Christ by placing our faith and trust in Jesus according to who he is, which is Lord and Savior. And in doing so, that moment where the scroll flies over and now it's about to enter in our house, it passes over. Right? The curse is no longer upon us because the work of Jesus Christ. That's one option. The other option that we're given in the New Testament is to go ahead, reject that, and wait for the second coming of Christ. In which many of the things that are outlined in this vision will come to fruition. The, the destruction that is outlined in this vision will come to fruition. And there will be no escape from it. According to the teaching of the New Testament. Those are the two options. This scroll will come. It will take flight. Will we come under the covering of Christ? Or will we face it on our own. And, and, and the question is not just true for us. It's true for all the people that we know and all the people that we love. The first one has already happened. Christ has already done the work that needs to be done. The second one is coming and it's inevitable. And what remains for us uh, is to choose. Will it be Christ or will it be to wait for the judgment to come? Now I'm going to come back to that in a moment because there is a, a, an important application point that comes out of that. But before I do so, I want to hold tight to the text. Let's stick to that and look at the next vision. Vision number 7, which starts in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. 
And he said, this is their iniquity, which is another word for sin, evil behavior, in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Now, if you're like me, your first question is, why is the wickedness in the basket a woman? I'm just going to ask it because I know you're asking it. And there are a couple of answers, probably many answers, but these are, these are two. First of all, the word wickedness, which is risha, is feminine. Had it been the word evil, which is ra, it would be masculine. So it might just be as simple as that. Or it could be that because the basket is actually an ephah, it's, it's a smallish basket, it, it might just be that what's in there is not a, a person but a statue, an idol of the kind that was worshipped by many of the nations surrounding Israel. So that's why the reference there. But whatever it is, at the end of the day, there is no special alignment of evil with any one gender. Um, after all, Satan himself is, is masculine all throughout the Bible. So I want to put that thought to rest. Verse 9, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. Now, storks are known for their strong wings and their long migration. So they can carry a lot for a long ways. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. I... That image of the basket flying away, carried by the two storks, hanging between heaven and earth, sort of a silhouette on the horizon. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So Shinar is, is in Babylon. In fact, um, it's the place where the Tower of Babel happened. So the first organized rebellion against God was in Shinar. It's the home of evil. So what's happening is, is evil's being gathered up, wickedness is being gathered up and taken away all the way to its home and there'll be a, a, a place built for it and it will be kept there. In other words, it is being separated from you. Evil and wickedness is going away. Far, far, far away. In fact, it, it needs... It's going so far, it needs the most capable animals to be able to carry this heavy load as far as it can go. And this is the key point of vision number seven. There will come a day when evil and sin and wickedness are separated. They're gone. And the passage is calling us to sit in that reality for a moment. To sit in that truth and the goodness of that truth. That the separation is dramatic. 
It's exhaustive. It's complete. It's full. Psalm 103, 12, and we sang about this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus talks about a day when all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers will be gathered out of the kingdom. And the vision is inviting us to imagine what an incredible relief it will be to finally wave goodbye to wickedness in the world. Right, of course, this week, we just feel that on a whole new level as we watch, you know, the people of Ukraine being overrun by a powerful army for, you know, just a desire for power and a grab of land. And so, you know, we see that kind of thing and it, it, it's crushing. We long for it to be over, to be done, for there to be no more of that in this world. And that's a good longing. That's a true longing. And it's one that will come to fruition. That's what, that's what this passage is saying. There's relief as that image of the stork. Let that just be emblazoned upon your mind. This is where we're headed to a day when wickedness will go away. So, a few things that come from this, a few takeaways that come from these two visions, six and seven. Uh, I want to say, first of all, let the scroll be the scroll. Let the scroll be the scroll. What do I mean by that? Uh, I think one of the encouragements for us that comes out of this passage is to remember, and this is especially important in our current uh, culture, which is exceedingly relativistic, right? Um, to remember that God is the one who defines what is right and wrong. It's not the opinion of the day that goes flying around, right? It's, it's not... The, this TV show or that TV show or this uh, pundit or that pundit. It's the scroll of God that goes flying over the land to determine where there is evil and wickedness. And that's a really important point for us because uh, in our current context and even living in a place where we tend to be a little bit more of the beleaguered minority in relation to the rest of our culture and context, it's really easy for us to be drawn in to views of right and wrong that don't ultimately stem from the word of God. And so part of the call of this passage is to remember that, look, there's, ultimately, it's God who decides what's right and wrong. God defines right and wrong. God, God decides, he defines what is evil and what is good. And he defines what's sin and righteousness. Not your personal preference. Not my personal preference. And not the culture's preference of the day. So what does that mean? That means we need to go back to the word continuously and allow our sense of right and wrong to be shaped by the way in which we steep in the word of God. Like a tea bag in a warm cup of water. We steep ourselves in the word of God. And it begins to infiltrate our soul a, a deep and profound moving understanding of right and wrong. And that becomes our guide. 
Number two takeaway. I'm just going to say it this way. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Why? Uh, because without Jesus, the curse is upon you. Without Jesus, the curse is upon you. Isn't it just astounding that the God of the universe would take on flesh, step into this world, and decide to take that curse on himself so that it wouldn't have to go on you? Doesn't that just cause your heart to lift up, your hands to want to raise up, and to sing praise to Jesus for what he's done? It is absolutely astounding what our God has done because of his great love for us. Takeaway number three, do evangelism. Do evangelism. If you feel a bit angsty about the destruction of sin because you're worried about others who've not yet come under the covering of Jesus Christ, that sort of means you're a normal, emotionally healthy person. Because you're connecting in with what's really happening here. And you love people. And that's good. But are you supposed to just sit in that angsty anxiety and just sort of fester? No. What God has called us to do with that is to move out in relationship to share the good news of the atoning work of Jesus Christ with the people around us. And Lord willing, as things open up and we have opportunity to do that more, we will be able to step in to that work more and more fully. You know, one of our agape teams is our alpha team. Before the pandemic hit, we had just finished a really powerful and wonderful season of an alpha course. Would love to see us stepping back into that work more fully. So if there's some little twinge in you saying, you know what, I've got people that I know I would love to walk. They would trust me and I would love to walk them on a journey through what the entire teaching of Christianity really is so that they can decide if Jesus is a savior for them. If that, if you have a sense in you that maybe God is stirring something, the Holy Spirit is stirring something in you to do that, then we've got, we've got a lane, a, a way for that to happen, to come alongside you and support you in that. I just want to encourage you to pay attention to that prompting of the Holy Spirit. Especially in this season. And then fourthly, keep the hope. Um, Joseph Lacante wrote a book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. So you can see the references to C.S. Lewis there, right? A wardrobe and Tolkien, a hobbit, and a great war, which is World War I that he's referring to. And he makes this really powerful point. Um, you know, both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, um, so they, they were soldiers in World War I. Tolkien was in the trenches in the very front of the battle line and C.S. Lewis was hit uh, and wounded, uh, you know, in a fight. So they both understood the horrors of war. They had been in the midst of it. 
And what Leconte observes, which just has stuck with me, is that coming out of World War II, all those young men and women who suffered through that, and all the artists who came out of that time, almost all of them ended up producing works that were nihilistic, dark, you know, uh, hopeless, etc., uh, etc. Et Except two, Tolkien and Lewis. You know, their, their writings are incredibly realistic. They don't shy away from the pain and the suffering of this world. But ultimately they come up with a hopeful vision for where we're headed. Why is that? He asks. What's the explanation? And the answer is that they knew they had a vision given to them from above of a world without sin. And guess what? You have that vision too. Zechariah has given it to you. So let's get going and live into that vision with the help of the Holy Spirit. God, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you fill us? Would you show us? We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.